and three, two, one. Welcome to The Peaceful Truth, the podcast where we talk about everything from women empowerment, feminism, and everything in between. You were joined by your host, Kenzie Meekbeck, with a very special guest today, Tawana. Hi. Hi. How are you? I am well. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Can you introduce yourself and tell um, me a little bit about yourself and then I'll kind of get into why we wanted to have you on. All right. So my name is Tawana Hodge. I am one of the academic and research librarians at um, SUNY Upstate Medical University. I work in the health sciences library. I've been in this position for about a year. Uh, a little over a year now. Um, a little bit about myself is that I was born and raised in the island of St. Thomas, which is a part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in humanities with minors in communication and psychology from the University of the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas campus. Um, and then I went on to get my uh, master's degree from the University of Washington in Seattle. But in between undergrad and graduate school, I had the amazing opportunity to participate in the iSchool Inclusion Institute, which was a program that was geared towards helping underrep- traditionally underrepresented minorities in information science, um, providing them with exposure and experiences and um, research experience to make them even more uh, marketable and prepared for um, graduate school. Um, and that was like one of the highlights of my life and I think really helped me um, out. I'm also a first generation college graduate. I guess I'm not a student anymore. I'm a oh, graduate. Awesome. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I am one of three kids. My little sister, she's in med school right now. Ooh, ooh. Dang. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a long haul. That's the long haul. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lifelong learner right there in the family. Um, and... Let's see. Is there anything else that you would like to know about myself? I never really quite know how to respond. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. And that program that you were just talking about is kind of the reason why you're here. I'm friends with one of your friends from the program, Mike, and he's actually connected me to a few guests recently. So that's really fun. Um, So the program seems really, really cool. Um, But I did want to have you on just because I love having powerful women on the podcast. And I love talking about different career paths to like, because I would say my audience is kind of a younger um, 20-something audience, and so dream big, anything out there. And I thought it was really cool to have a librarian on because I actually don't even know if I've, like, had a friend that's a librarian, so I have a lot of questions. Some of them might be super basic, but, um, yeah. There's no such thing as a stupid question or a basic question. Good. Yeah, there's the librarian coming out in you already. (laughs) (laughs) So can you explain to me, like, what – a librarian does behind the scenes that most people might not know or what all do you do that people might just stereotype or not even know? So the one thing about librarianship, um, so I'm just going to take a little bit, a little step back um, and kind of talk about what I do because I'm an academic health sciences librarian and I'll talk about why I said all of that before I say librarian. Um, Librarianship is an incredibly a complex and varied profession. So um, for a librarian, you can be a public librarian. So you're working in a public library. And so that could mean um, being a teen services librarian. So you're exclusively working with the adolescents age group. That means you can be a children's librarian. So you're going from like um, pre-K um, to elementary school. 
And that might include um, even doing little ones um, like story hour or story time and things of that nature. Um, it could mean being an adult services librarian, and that includes um, working and developing programming and outreach to adults in the community. And so that could be from like young adults from like 21 to 25 um, or older. And that also includes senior citizens as well. So like within that, that's just public. And then there are special libraries. So special libraries kind of cover like government um, and even corporations. So like more likely Disney have people who are um, librarians or they might not have the title, but they're still um, making sure that there's um, access to the information and uh, make sure that it's cataloged. So there's people who actually do the process of cataloging and organizing the information to make it findable for people. Um, and so because discoverability and accessibility are really, really huge components of librarianship to me. Um, and then there's the academic libraries. Uh, and so that's kind of like where I'm working in an academic um, institution. And so that's usually where it is tied to university or research organization um, and we are adherent to the mission visions and goals of that institution and so that usually means like the research and the curriculum needs of the um, the faculty and the staff um, and as well as the students wow. and some of them are private some of them are public um, SUNY where I work is a public institution and we um, are part of the medical university, but we also have the university hospital. And so for the people that work, the library staff that work at SUNY Upstate, we serve over 10,000 staff members, but also we serve the public as well and the patrons um, and the faculty and staff on the academic side. So there's the academic and the clinical side. Um, and wow. then- <laughs> This is so cool. Like again, things I would have never thought of. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, um, so I mentioned that there's academic, special, public, and there's school um, media specialists or school media librarians. And so these are the ones where um, when you were like maybe in high school or middle school or um, elementary school that you maybe went to the library and you were able to check out books, um, use the computers, uh, things of, you know, information literacy skill where you learn how to search things, um, you learn how to cite and different things like that. So from literally from like little to like senior citizen that you've probably went to a public library. Um, you've probably experienced, um, if you've gotten your undergraduate degree, um, associates, even if you went to some college, you've probably benefited from some of the resources, um, that librarians helped either to organize to make it more findable, um, working on the back end with license agreements with these huge, companies like Elsevier um, and Sage and probably not making any sense to some people. No, I, I'm uh, falling. I'm falling. <laughs> um, and so like there's even within librarianship, like there's so many different specializations. And then within that, sometimes the jobs are typical. So there's like public services librarians. Um, so those that mainly are the, on the front line. So they are the ones that's engaging with the customers. And so that could be being an outreach librarian in the academic realm. And so that means you're basically going out there um, and you are um, targeting specific populations, talking about um, why the library is best for them. You are connecting um, the library resources and services to what is happening. So whether you're connecting to faculty and staff because you have liaison areas that you're connected to them, whether you are working with um, specific uh, departments, student organizations, um, it could vary really and truly. 
um, or if you're like working with certain community members, certain organizations. Um, so I could, I could go on forever, but I know you. That's amazing. Question. So way more multifaceted than anyone could ever dream of pretty much. Um, and you guys are kind of like the curators of the knowledge and preserve it like modern day historians kind of, right. Or yeah, kind of. So there's librarians and then there's archivists. So archivists are more in the realm of actually preserving that information. So oh, identifying okay. what information should be preserved um, and working on preserving that information. So it's, it, uh, whether it's born digital materials. So like um, photos that you take on your phone, um, whether it is um, emails that's been sent out. And so there's like, archivists um, and special collections, like archives and special collections that some are tied to um, the community, some is tied to the state. So like there's a state archives that is primarily about collecting and preserving the um, state's history. Some are community um, archives and special collections. And so it is developed to maintain that community's history and make it available um, for um, prosperity for the future. There are um, university special collection and archives. So at SUNY, we do have one. Um, and most universities and um, colleges usually might have one. Um, and so they're collecting and preserving the history. So like um, State of the Union, not state, um, university um, addresses uh, different programming stuff like that that is preserved, um, stuff from faculty papers and research from student organizations. Uh, so like for me, I think of archivists as um, people who actually deal with preserving and librarians that deal with providing access. That is cool. Okay, well, there you go. You learn something new every day. And which brings me kind of to my next questions, though. Like what are the next projects that you're working on currently and what has your some of your past work included them based on like what you just mentioned so um so i'm an academic i'm an accidental academic health sciences librarian <laughs> why is it an accident um i uh, kind of stumbled upon um working in an academic health sciences um library uh before then i worked kind of primarily in academic libraries so before this i had worked at the university of the virgin islands as um, the information literacy and collection development librarian. Um, and so that job include a lot of instruction. So library instruction usually is around not just learning how to use the library resources, but learning um, different information literacy skills. So information literacy skills could basically be boiled down to um, identifying that there is an information gap, there's a need, and being able to have the skills and the strategies uh, to be able to fill that gap and to um, move you along, whether it's an assignment, um, project, research that you're working on. And so it could be as simple as helping someone to um, identify keywords um, for their uh, research topic or thesis, um, to um, helping someone um, pick out the citation management software and how to use it in order to develop their either uh, for in-text citations or their references of bibliography. And it spans everything in between there, um, identifying which is the best database and knowing how to use that database in order to get the best search results that that's relevant. And even looking at how to evaluate the information that you're coming across. Because there's nowadays there's so much content that's out there. So much content. Endless. And so <laughs> <laughs> Yes. 
Um, and so librarians, you know, I have I used to have this show that says librarians are the original search engines. Um, and I love it. Well, <laughs> but I think we also are really good at filtering out information, being able to decipher, you know, is this um, legitimate or can this be validated? Is this credible? Is this authoritative source? And depending on what your research is, depending on what you're looking for, each source, each source is going to be different. So you might be using a Wikipedia article versus a scholarly article. And depending on what your research is, is going to depend which one you're using. So you could be analyzing the Wikipedia page for your dissertation. Um, and so, of course, you're going to cite that. But it's very different than a freshman who might be using Wikipedia to um, figure out, um, to develop their pro and con debate on abortion. So it, it varies in terms of like what their uses are. I'm, not, I'm never going to tell somebody like, don't use something. Yeah. You know, everyone has a level of searching skills and uh, competency. It's just a matter of being able to develop it and fine tune it a little bit more. Sorry, like that's what I did a lot in my last job. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what's and this one until? Uh, so this one, um, so I am the liaison for the College of the Graduate Studies. And so I'm working primarily for graduate students. Okay. My last two jobs, um, it was primarily with undergraduate students. So graduate students is, a, is different. Um, Are they more refined? I feel like, because I feel like as an, un, like, I never went to graduate school, but I felt like as an undergrad, sometimes I'm just like, oh, what am I doing here? Like, are these people... <laughs> more refined like do they understand how things work or less than that well it really depends I can't speak for graduate students um on a whole um, <laughs> yeah maybe not stereotype <laughs> them all but like overall I guess what are you seeing well the thing with graduate students kind of similar to undergraduate students is that we don't know what their um information literacy skill set skill set or level is when they come in because they could have taken a credit bearing information literacy class where they got credit for it. Uh, it could have just been like a one shot session. So just the librarian was there for one session in their, you know, psychology 120 class. And then, you know, that's it. Um, in terms of like for that particular, cause they could have had it for English, um, literature for comp and different things of that nature. Um, because I work with the biomedical sciences. So these are people who are getting their masters and PhD in like MD, PhD, immunology, cell and developmental biology. A lot of these things where I have, like, I understand like maybe 20% of what it is that they're doing. Uh, so a lot of this is lab work. So this is not like the humanities or the social sciences because um, they're, they're in labs, they're doing research, they're um, doing a lot of things that I have yet to be able to speak knowledgeably about. Uh, <laughs> and so the level of the services and, uh, that I can provide to them is different than what I was able to do in the last two um, places. So one of the things that I've been um, working on is uh, figuring out how to um, working with ORCID IDs, which is a unique identifier um, that helps with disambiguation. So it makes it easier for people to be able to find you. You're able to, you're, you're issued a 16 digit unique code um, that makes it easy. If, even if you get married, you change your name, if there's many different variations, because when people publish and um, publish, sometimes a journal might have your full name. Sometimes it's just like your um, initials. Um, like your first and middle initial and your last name. And no journal is equal. No database is created equal, as I tell students. 
Um, and sometimes how it's displayed, what level of information that they have is different. And so being able to have this unique identifier that you can cultivate and create essentially a listing of all the publications, research grants, which can be really, really useful for, um, in this case, postdoc. So like if they're trying to get a, after they get their uh, doctorate, if they're trying to go into postdoc or even get a tenure track position, it's very easy for somebody to pull up their ORCID ID um, and see all the things that they've done. And the great thing about it is that they can control what is public facing and what is private. Mm. Um, it's like a social security number for the library. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so it's really, really great for researchers and anyone really, because anyone can create it, create um, an ORCID ID. Um, but it really does help with that disambiguation, making it easier for people to find you. But it also helps with dissemination and sharing of your research wow. as well. Um, and also makes it easier for people to track you. So imagine that you're just able, instead of putting in John J. Smith, you know, you're able to just search for this number and know that every time that you search for it and say like Scopus, which is one of the databases, you're always going to come up with this person information. Wow. And so you're not going to have to keep searching. Is this the right person? Is this the right person? And then you have to click in and then that spends, you spend so much time trying to figure out, is this the right person that you're looking for at times? So, so that as well as other different sessions, like I have a publication one-on-one session that's coming up with, um, this chair of this department is presenting and I'm going to be talking about ORCID ID, citation management software, um, and different things that the library can provide for them. So what is it like being a librarian in the modern world and how has it changed or developed as computers have changed and developed and the whole, I'm sure the whole industry has changed as a librarian. And some people just think of libraries as like books on a shelf. And how wrong is that, or how correct is that, and how, what is the life of a librarian like nowadays than it used to be? Do you know that history? So I will confess, I never took the history of librarianship course when it was available to me. Um, I was super busy trying to like take all of the like related courses that I think that I needed to take, and then I was also getting a certificate in nonprofit management. So I was a little busy in grad school. A little. Uh, <laughs> Kind of a little bit. Uh, um, but when it comes to librarianship and from my understanding of talking to others and um, just, you know, my own personal experiences and professional experiences is that librarianship has changed tremendously over the decades and centuries because to me initially it seemed to be focused on the objects. So it was very object oriented. So it was focused on uh, the book, the encyclopedia, the thesaurus, um, novels, novellas, biographies, these different things. It was just very, very like object driven. But now I think in this day and age, it's very user centered, driven, patron driven, student driven, faculty driven, staff driven. Um, I say that is because, you know, even in like different libraries and even like information management and information science, there's like user experience, you know, where they are testing out things and they're getting, they have focus groups and they're getting people to provide their feedback and like, is this easy to find? Is this intuitive? Um, you know, that, you know, we used to say, we talk about like control vocabulary. And so the control vocabulary is like assigned um, terms 
Um, and but then we talk about natural language queries, and that's what people put in when they're in Google. You know, when they when they see a search box, they just type in maybe their whole thesis question, research question, or <laughs> you know, they're they they type in like you know all of their symptoms to like come up to see like if, what their diagnosis might be, which I don't think is ever a great thing to do. But <laughs> no, that's definitely a spiral. <laughs> yes, uh, WMD would say you have cancer. Let me not call them out, but. Um, no, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the great things, um, and librarianship has changed because now, you know, people used to think that you had to, that librarians were just all about the shushing um, and about putting books back on the shelf um, and about um, being gatekeepers. Yeah. I think ultimately that was the main perception of librarians. Um, as well as like, I remember in one of my first classes that we had talked about what do people think of when they see, when they hear the word librarian. So it's usually female, um, older, white, um, with a cardigan and a bun and likes cats. Um, and so except for being female, I don't like cats, I'm allergic to them. Um, <laughs> I like cardigans, but I don't always wear them. Um, that for, if, for most people, when I say that I'm a librarian, they're kind of like, it's interesting. Well, that's, that, that's really cool because I don't, not the typical stereotype of what a librarian looks like. So even just what people think of a librarian looks like has changed dramatically, I feel like, um, let alone the plethora of things that we do right. um, from, you know, used to be called like cataloging. I was like metadata where, you know, we're trying to make sure that all of the data, so like metadata is like data about data. So it's just not about like the, uh, where the photograph was taken is like what camera was taken, what time, you know, what social media website it was pulled. Like there's so many, and I'm not a metadata librarian. I will never be in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> found that out the hard way, but good to know. Uh, <laughs> sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just like, it's become more focus on the person and not expecting the users to come to us, but us going to the users physically, being in the communities, really learning about them, understanding um, where the libraries was before. Because at the time, I always say that libraries reflect the society that we live in. And there was a point in time where libraries did not allow people of color in. There was a point in time where libraries were segregated. There was a point in time where, you know, a lot of it was very reflective of the tumultuous time that society was going into. Um, but librarians, librarians, libraries can do an immense amount of good, and they do, and it's amazing. We don't put books back in the shelf. Like, I don't even know when is the last time I actually put a book back in the shelf, to be quite honest. Um, a lot of the times I'm engaging with students. I'm helping them with literature reviews. I'm doing one-on-one um, -on -one research consultation, helping them find information about a gene or protein, you know, so a lot of the that things must be really that hard I... coming from no background. <laughs> I'll be like, um, excuse me. <laughs> well, let's just say that I do a lot of continuing education. I, I you know, I look at um, other materials that other librarians who are in similar positions like me do. I um, connect with other librarians in similar positions and I kind of like stalk and harass them. Uh, <laughs> to get their experiences, to kind of get an insight into one of the things that they do for their, for their areas, for their, um, for their students, faculty and staff, for the people that they support. And so I think that's one of the major ways is that we're not gatekeepers anymore. 
we're trying our best to provide information to everyone, but also helping them understand um, how to get, not just get access to that information, but how to use it responsibly. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be extremely helpful. I assume extremely helpful for everyone in health sciences as well, (laughs) especially the field you're in. That's really cool. Um, So why do you feel like libraries in general and this continued maintenance of this information into this digital era is so important and why is that so vital? Uh, Well, I think it's vital because, you know, librarians, we we morph as society does. Um, And as we become... uh, and we're kind of in a revolutionary stage right now, kind of like paper versus electronic, where there's some people who kind of like um, paper all the way. Elect- I'm I'm a I'm a baby of both worlds. Let's just say that. Yeah. Uh, Which is probably very useful. It is um, because depending on who you're engaging with, they might prefer the um, the print version yeah. or the physical copy versus the electronic copy. Right. Um, and even depending on like whether that's in uh, versus a book versus an article and so many other things. But I think for a librarian, as we move from kind of like the analog physical print to the digital, is that we're learning about how to manage data, how to manage information, um, not just small bits, but huge bits. So like there's this whole thing about big data and it being able to help us um answers some of the societal's biggest um, issues and questions, where we're learning about uh, data management, we're learning about open access and how to make a lot of the things that we are generating open to everybody. So the only thing that you might have that might be a barrier is getting access to the internet. And that's one of the biggest things that is happening right now is because um, some people don't know this, but like when you go to the library, um, you know, you're able for probably you're able to walk in and use the resources. Sometimes they might, um, you might be limited based on whether or not you have a library card or not. And I can, sometimes I get into kind of debates about like why everything, everyone should have a library card and it shouldn't be super restrictive, but that's probably another conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um one of the things is, is that there's these paywalls where I don't know if you ever experienced it in undergrad where it's like, you have to pay $39.95 to get access to this article. Yeah, you. I went to the University of Oklahoma. They had a pretty fluent like library online system, um, or at least for what I needed. I was a journalism major. But yeah, I, I, I've been in my current field where I'm trying to read an article. I'm in the medical field in my 9 to 5 um, a little bit. and. Um, and I can't find or access the article. So I've definitely experienced that paywall. Yes. Um, and millions of people do. And um, libraries have worked on the utmost to make sure that people have access to the things, instant access to the things that they need. But that's not always the case. Like no library is able to collect and provide access to everything. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're a community college, if they're one of the Ivy League institutions. They're just not able to provide access to readily available access to everything. Um, and I think that's why open access is so critical and so important, because there are institutions and places that, especially in the medical field, that desperately need access to evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice. Um, and the thing is, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter if you are able... If your budget is 
you know, $5,000 for a library or if it's $250 million. That a lot of the times people aren't, aren't able to provide the best possible services or for their communities because they don't have access to that material. Um, and so that's one of the things that a lot of libraries are focusing on at the moment. Um, one of the things is also um, what we're currently working on is an institutional repository that um, which is a kind of a subset of um, open access that makes things um, publicly available for the most part. So like posters um, and papers and even data. So the data that um, is collected and kind of scrubbed from personally identifiable information is available for people so that they can reproduce that, you know, maybe that similar study or that similar um, method that people have developed. So there's like so many things that's just kind of like happening um, simultaneously. And I can't speak for the public libraries because they probably have a lot of their own really good things that's happening there. But in academic health sciences, that's, that's kind of where we're at. It's kind of like, um, you know, evidence-based practice, open access, data management, data creation, um, institutional repositories, um, and just making sure that, you know, people are getting their information literacy skills that they, that they need. And that could be through um, using Skype or Zoom or Google Hangouts uh, to do resource consultations or to participate in online um, in online degree programs and classes and courses that's being taught. Uh, it's the development of um, LibGuides, um, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of LibGuides before. I love them because they're a way that- um, What guides? You kind of cut out there for a second. Oh, LibGuides. So L-I-B guides that, well, LibGuides, Springshare is the platform, but LibGuides are essentially um, developed by library staff. And what they do is they collocate or they bring together resources based on a topic, class, um, okay, and different things. And so one of the great things for my starting points, I usually point people to is like, go to a LibGuide. Or sometimes they call research guides, depending on the institution. Um, but they're a really great place because what that um, staff member does is that they identify the relevant resources and they put it into one simple guide with like the relevant journals, databases, um, who to contact, who's that contact person if they have a liaison, um, and other external resources that is not based on subscription. Sorry, I don't know if I answered your question, but I feel like I went really on. <laughs> no, no. Um, I actually kind of have a, another quick question, maybe yes. if we could answer it quickly. What, um, and this is just my curiosity, okay. so, like for the uh, like academic um, like articles that let's say I am researching something for work, I hit a paywall. Mm -hmm. My curiosity is like, do those authors see that revenue and like by making it public, will that hinder their revenue? Um, do you get what I'm saying there? Yes. Um, so I am going to, I, there was this movie showing, um, at work called paywall. Okay. I think it's paywall, the movie, um, that provides a really excellent explanation oh, cool. of, um, why people get hit into that paywall. And so, um, and this has a bit to do with the publishing industry. Um, but from what my understanding is, and I could be completely wrong, but my perspective is, is that what happens is that, um, the researchers apply for a grant. Yeah. Uh, they get this if they get this grant, they do this research. Um, and then they publish this research. Uh, but since some of these researchers are 
you know, affiliated either with a um, university or research organization, they might be trying to go out for tenure. And so because of that, they're trying to publish in a journal with a high impact factor. So that means that lots of people are able to see their research and it's disseminated widely. But usually for that, like there's no um, price charge to that author to publish that article. But what happens is that if it gets selected, goes to the whole peer review process, in order for people to get access to that journal, they have to get it through, if they don't have an individual subscription, they get it from a library. And that library is usually paying thousands of dollars to get access to either that journal or, or, or a journal subscription package, which like several different journals. And then that also depends on like how many students, how many faculty, how many staff. Um, and so then... It ends up that money ends up going to the um, the vendor or the publisher, and so then so not so the that, person that wrote it necessarily. Mm-mm. So imagine you're getting money from say so say you're you got a grant from NSF, um, and then you do you do your research, and 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 it's taken a while for um, things to come to the point where. Um, there is this um, clause where it says that a copy of, the, if it's like federally, I'm hoping I'm the right, if a federally funded <laughs> research ends up being um, put into um, PubMed, okay. which you probably used before, yeah. or PubMed Central. Uh, but sometimes there's an embargo period. So that means that it cannot be released for like maybe six months, a year or so. And sometimes that embargo period is so that that publisher can make money off of it. Mm. Okay. Wow. Well, there you go. Drop some knowledge there. Like, because I was like, well, then it would kind of stink if that, like, took away from the person that did that research funding if it was all public. But then I was like, well, then again, maybe it's not that reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, open access, there's so many different tiers. And sometimes, you know, I'm all for open access, but there's just like green and gold and bronze or something like that. It's very, it's very interesting and, and intricate and complex, but also very, very much needed. Um, the author does get stuff out of it because if it is published, that that increases um, their visibility and their likelihood for them to get tenure and also um, for them to get like more um, grants and things of that nature. But at the same time is that they're getting, for some of them, they're getting a grant from the government for then libraries and other institutions to end up paying this publisher um, or this um, vendor like Elsevier or um, yeah. okay. Apple to get access to these to these things. So it's like kind of like free and then you have to pay for it. And it's just very interesting. Ish. Cycle. Free-ish. Free-ish. But yeah. Yeah, there's there's balances. There's, there's costs, hidden costs. Interesting. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that to me. Oh, you're welcome. So how'd you get into this career path and why are you so passionate about it? What, what do you like about it so much? Well, my librarian origin story. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Let's hear it. So I knew from middle school that I wanted to become a librarian. Really? Yes. Uh, Yes. I was a very unique child um, growing up because most people... Like I'm the like I said I was I'm a first first generation college graduate I'm but I'm one of five so I'm number three completely in the middle and I'm the <laughs> first one to be like I'm gonna go straight to college after high school and I did that um 
And for me in um, middle school, the reason why I wanted to become a librarian is because I wanted to introduce people to the wonderful world of books. You know, uh, I don't know if you know much about St. Thomas, but it's 32 square miles. Um, it is about a 30 minute plane ride from Puerto Rico, but on the Google map, you have to like zoom in like several times to see it. That's how small it is. Gorgeous, <laughs> um, I bet though. Yes, very much so. Um, but not a lot of things to do for kids. Um, there's only so many times you can go to the beach before you're like, eh, it's the beach. It gets old, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, very quickly. Um, and then for me, even books was one of the ways that I could go on many adventures, fall in love, go on epic adventures, learn different cultures. It's just, I just love reading so much. Um, and I wanted to introduce people to that. Um, and I never deviated except for once where I was like, I'm going to become a forensic pathologist. And that's just, that was like five minutes I thought about very that. Very interesting I, fields though. Yeah, I think that was at the time that Bones was becoming very popular. Oh, okay. You're, you've always been studious, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, uh, not for me. I don't think I can work well with dead people. So um, I was like, I'll go back to my books where they're not alive. And um, <laughs> that's my imagination. Um, and then I didn't deviate anymore. So it was like middle school, high school. And then in undergrad, um, I worked in uh, the library. So for about four out of the five years I was at UVI, I worked at the library, and I realized that academic librarianship was it for me. Um, and that in between undergrad and I think before I graduated from grad school, it morphed into me being able to help uh, people find the right information at the right time so that they would hopefully um, make informed decisions that would influence their lives for the better. So that was kind of like my, my, uh, my motto. <laughs> Uh, um, for kind of doing what I do. And so for me, this, this is a dream come true. I tell people like anything I get to do is a plus. I'm a librarian. You know, my dream has been actualized. Um, and so it's just been an exciting adventure because it's going to be four years to this June since I graduated from grad school. Congratulations. Way to yeah. kick butt. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so I guess that kind of answered why you're so passionate. You help people find information um, that they may might not have ever even dreamed of. So that's really cool. Um, is there anything else on that that I didn't ask that you can think of? Um, well, on that question, I have a few more. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I know, I know, I know. Um, I'd be like, we're ending really early now. No, no, no. Um, no I think for me, it is something, you know that most people, well, one of the things that I've experienced is that for us, for some people, librarianship is like a second or third career. Um, and, you know, growing up, being really passionate about, about becoming a librarian, I had a lot of like, what? You have to get your master's degree? Got to go to school for that? No. Did you just shelf books? Yeah. <laughs> like, so much more. Uh, <laughs> so much more. I'm like, I'm going to be a cool librarian. Um, these are all the things that I'm learning in grad school. These are all the things that I'm doing right now. Um, so I think a lot of my family and friends and people that I know, I'm very quick to disabuse the notion of, you know, we just shush people and we just reshelve books um, and we like cats. So for me, I'm like, uh, that's not any, that's none funny. of well, <laughs> some people like cats. Good for them. Um, <laughs> hey, over here, I'm sitting next to mine. <laughs> And I'm like, kudos to them. Um, <laughs> but there are so many amazing, amazing librarians um, and LIS professionals and library staff members. Um, and it's 
it's an amazing profession. Like it's one of the um, most, I want to say it's the top, but I want to say like it's one of the top five like trusted professions out there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you can't hate a fireman. You can't hate a librarian. I feel like it's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So I did creep and read your resume and I asked you for it um, to do my research. I apologize. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I didn't just ask. So, what does a librarian do? Um, but something I'm very interested in, um, because this podcast likes to try to focus, at least attempt to focus on diversity. So, why, um, like you helped create a library diversity fellowship? What is mm-hmm. that? I'll let you explain it because I don't even know what that would be. So, tell me more. So, um, so this is actually one of the things that I do in um, conjunction with um, my current job. Um, But a library uh, diversity residency or fellowship is usually a a post MLIS. So like after they've gotten their graduate degree, um, structured um, program that provides them the skills and expertise in order for them to uh, thrive in the profession. Um, especially in helping traditionally underrepresented groups succeed in the profession. Um, at this point in time, I think the uh, percentage is hovering around like 86.7% white in the profession. Um, yes. Um, and I think that was like the last uh, racial eth- um, um, ethnicity statistics that was taken, I think, in 2012 or 2016, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so... It hasn't moved uh, tremendously um, in terms of the racial and ethnic representation of librarians. Um, and so the diversity residency um, or fellowship in this case uh, was created to um, provide the opportunity for someone who is very passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, the opportunity to gain uh, the skills and knowledge um, and expertise in order to um, get another job. So it's, it's meant to help train them, um, provide them a support system, um, give them uh, different projects um, for them to do, to engage with different communities in order for them to be the preferred candidate in their next position. Because one of the things that I, uh, when I was in grad school and I was looking um, for jobs is that a lot of times they would call for like two years of professional experience. Um, and I say professional like this is because for me, I went straight from undergrad um, to grad school, and I don't, I didn't have any um, experience working full time as a library staff member, um, and so uh, I also am a product of a diversity residency. So I was the first diversity resident librarian at the University of Utah, um, and it was a very interesting experience that helped me grow tremendously professionally. Um, and there's way more um, diversity, well, library residencies and fellowships. Um, Some of them have a diversity component, some don't, Um, but it's meant to provide the next, to help provide the next generation of librarians um, that kind of takes off where grad school left them, or if they're transitioning from, say, public to academic, um, that it helps them understand the academic librarianship structure. Oh, wow. Well, dang, that's awesome. That's really yes. cool. So what do you hope comes from programs? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but um, what do you hope comes from programs like these? And what do you see the, the future being like from the impact of this? 
Well, I am hoping that one day these programs are not in place because I'm hoping that it becomes automatic, that it's embedded, that this is not something that you, you that you don't have to add on diversity, equity, inclusion, or accessibility. It is something that automatically comes to mind. Um, and it's not an add-on for anything else. Um, and I'm hoping that there's a more emphasis in libraries library associations, organizations, um, institutions, um, informational library schools that, you know, that people go through, that there's this more emphasis on making sure that the people actually understand what they're getting themselves into when it comes to librarianship, but also understands that um, equity, diversity, and inclusion are things that is a part of everything that we do. Um, I don't think a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot, I don't think some people really and truly understand that it is um, integral to our way of life and for us to be able to like move forward. Um, and I think for programs like these, it provides people the experiences, the opportunity to learn more about academic. Most of the residencies and fellowships are in academic and research institutions. So you learn more about that structure because academia can be a, it's very unique. <laughs> and complex place with many different hierarchies, many different policies, many different structures. Um, and even in the library itself, depending on how big or small it is, it can just get super, super just kind of like vague and complex. And so these residencies and fellowships are meant as a way to help people and provide them with the uh, professional skill, professionalism that is needed, um, also help with their research um, and publishing. So it provides um, a platform um, and training for them that they may or may not have gotten in graduate school or they may or may not have gotten in uh, their first or second career, if this is their second or third career for librarianship. Um, so I could, I could go on talking about it um, so much because I'm very, very passionate about them and that they could be doing an incredible amount of good if they are designed well um because in some instances there are some people for diversity residencies who are seen as that person to do all things diversity or pe to be on that diversity hire to be on all search committees and it's like it's not the case or shouldn't be yeah because so. just one person like they only show that perspective um, that's really cool. And how, um, how, I guess this also leads into maybe this could be related, but what do you mm -hmm. see the future of librarians, uh, libraries and librarians being like in the future, even like as it progresses into, uh, hopefully a more open world, hopefully also a more, um, technologically advanced world. What do you foresee happening? Well, um, you know, it's funny you, you ask that question because there is an actual person, I think his name is my, Miguel Figueroa. I hope, I'm sorry, Miguel, if you ever listen to this and I mispronounce. Um, oh, I'm but terrible. He, I'm, I, I try my <laughs> best, but damn, do I butcher some names. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, there's actually this like feature of the libraries where like I signed up for uh, this, uh, to get this email that talked about the big things that's happening in information and libraries about like artificial intelligence, um, about uh, virtual realities, um, about, um, you know, the things that, um, 
like personalist, like digital personal assistants, like Alexa, um, and the impact that that is happen, uh, that is having. Um, talking about, um, you know, fake news and misinformation and disinformation, and so it kind of like talks about these different like themes and themes and concepts that are very big right now, but also identifying what they might look like in the future. Uh, so he would be the perfect person to answer this question, but I'm going to give it a try. Um, so I think one of the biggest thing I think is getting people to um, how to connect with each other in human ways, um, but also learning um, for them to learn about how to engage with technology and information in a healthy manner. Um, I think being able for people to have the ability to evaluate what it is that they're coming across, not to um, trust everything that they are coming across, whether it's on Facebook, um, for people to understand like what they get on social media um, is not may not be the truth or a fact. Um, understanding that uh, <laughs> you there's <don't> no say. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was like, I'm, I'm trying not to like get into politics there. So um, <laughs> we'll do that at the moment. Um, so I think that. <laughs> um, sorry, I feel like I'm getting totally off. No, you're fine. You were saying. Um. I don't know. It's just the thing is, is that it's very hard to predict the future because the present is so complex and so challenging at the moment. Um, there's people who try to predict it um, and it turns out to be the complete opposite. Um, but I think right now, um, and that is going to kind of like have ripple effects in the short term and possible long term future, um, is how well we're doing at... Um, being able to uh, teach people how to engage with the information that they come across, um, how to evaluate it, um, how to, um, one of the biggest thing I think is like providing access to it. So like there's, I don't know if you ever heard of net neutrality before, but yeah. uh, have you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so um, that's something that people are not thinking about, but that yeah. has a huge amount of impact in our ability to be able to get like streaming services so, like you know I Pandora bet. Netflix but even like if I wanted to go to Wikipedia the fact that it depending on my service provider I might have to pay money to for streaming services um, or going to certain um, networks or um, websites and things of that nature um, and so like censorship is really a big thing and you know it's it's absolutely terrifying. Um, I've heard I have 451 a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope. Oh. Um, and that is the future that we're trying to avoid. We're trying to avoid a future where um, it is very similar to these dystopian um, blockbusters that we've seen in the last few years, yeah. uh, where there's this just this huge monolith that is just literally controlling the lives of everyone and being able to dictate what they can and cannot do or what they can and cannot read. I think it's the ability for people to be able to understand how to go about finding out information on their own and being able to engage with each other, with their medical care provider, with their um, friends and colleagues, whomever it is, in a um, in a really good and structured, non-disagreement manner, in a manner or way, I think that's going to be one of the biggest things. Um, and providing, and there's this like 
you've heard of the digital divide, right? I think a lot of people will have heard of it. And I think technology, what it does is, is exacerbate certain issues. It doesn't solve it. Um, and I think that there's this information divide. Who has access to information and who doesn't? I used to tell students that, you know, maybe before university you had access to like this much information and the university provides you access to this much. And I'm talking to like subscription and different things that you may not have had access before. Some people have access to this much and some people have access to this much. And that literally controls so many aspects in your life, you know, having access to like consumer reports. Yeah. Even just knowing what is out there and that how that can uh, that impacts so much aspect of your life. And when you actually find that information out and if it's depending on when you find it out that it might be useful, it may not be useful. Yeah. Gosh, girl, I could go on for a million years about all that. I really could. Like, oh, yeah, it could be scary. Um, anything else I haven't asked today that you feel like I didn't touch on that you feel like maybe aspiring librarians or even just people that are more interested in what you do? Is there anything else I haven't touched on that you would like to add? Um. So I think for those who uh, might be aspiring um, librarians or information professionals, um, I think one of the main things that um, actually led me to being where I am is being very, very upfront about what it is that I wanted to do. I was very vocal. I was not like, I would not have been able to do anything like this 10 years ago because I was very shy and withdrawn. Um, and you don't have to be extroverted. Or, I'm like, I'm, I'm an introvert. Like I am come across as an extrovert. Many people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm like, no, I'm an introvert. Like I hate human beings at the end of the day. Well, not <laughs> that I hate It takes a long time <laughs> for you to get out <laughs> and a lot of mental yes. preparation. <laughs> yes. Um, and so you don't have to change yourself for the career that you want. Um, but one of the things that I've done that I did that I'm immensely happy about is that I told people who were in careers that I wanted to be that I wanted to become a librarian. And so because I did that, there was many people who took me under their wings. And it was actually my mentor, one of my mentors, Tanisha Mills, who told me about the I3 um, program, the iSchool Inclusion Institute, and who helped me with my application materials. So if I hadn't kind of like integrated her at lunch one day and just kind of like threw myself at her, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that I would have been able, um, that I would be where I am. I might be just in someplace different. And so being able to you know, figure out what it is that you, and if you don't, that's fine. Conduct informational interviews, talk to many different people um, um, who's doing things that you might even be slightly interested in. Because a lot of the people are very, they're like very like flattered that you want to know more about them and their story and, and, and what they're doing. Um, and sometimes that can end up turning to be um, a coach or a mentor or a sponsor. And then do your research. It's just like this kind of like go out there, look and see, like ask questions. You know, like I understood that for me, I had to be my best advocate if I wanted to become a librarian. Like I knew that I needed to get, you know, my high school diploma. I needed to get my bachelor's and it didn't really matter what it was. Um, but because I needed to get my bachelor's in order to get my master's degree in order to become a credential librarian. Um and so it's just like, whatever it is that you want to do, it has to be stronger than anything else you're going to come up against. Because you're going to come up against a lot of stuff 
they literally have to be that light and you know the darkness sometimes life is to carry you through it and so like you have to make sure that whatever it is that you want to do it's it's strong enough to carry you through all of that um and then you know when you when you are doing what you do when you love you don't really work a day in your life i mean sometimes you might be stressed sometimes you're like oh my gosh uh <laughs> yeah not every day is going to be picture perfect no, um, it's not. And even as a librarian, there are certain things that I just like so much emails. Oh my gosh. I can't tell you how many emails I read and send out a day. Um, but that's the 21st century for you. But there's going to be, it's just, I think really just being positive, staying positive, staying true to who you are. Um, because a lot of people is going to tell you a lot of nonsense. You know, I had to deal with a lot of nonsense, um, about what people thought. It is that a librarian did, um, or about um, you know whether or not I might or might not have made it. Um, but I have cultivated a really strong support system now that I know if I'm having a really bad day that I can call someone up, and <laughs> they're going to be like, "Tuana, what are you talking about? Like you're amazing. Like you're doing like 50 million committees. You're doing this. You're doing that." Um, and the fact is, like a tiny girl, tiny girl girl from an island that's a tiny island 32 square miles like I never in a million years thought that I would know Mike Mike would connect me to you that I'd be doing this but I just helped someone um she got into my alma mater she reached out to me you know earlier like July 1st uh January 1st of this year and she not only got into my alma mater but she got a fellowship that I did, I was I was able to help her review her materials and you know help her with the interview and stuff like that. Um, and I I never thought I never thought that I'd be able to do that. Dream big so, and work hard, right? Dream big, work hard, but also understand that sometimes for me, I never thought that I'd end up in Seattle, Salt Lake City, back in St. Thomas. And then in Syracuse, of all the places, I had never, like, you can have your plan, but understand, like, your end goal, it might not be a straight line. You might be, like, doing all of this before you get to, like... <laughs> it's, that, yeah. it's not the truth. <laughs> it's true. It's 100% yeah. true. Well, that is really cool. Um, I really appreciate you being on. Um anything so there's one thing I always do at the end of every episode it's random it can be anything um I always like to end on a positive note though so what are you looking forward to this week um what am I looking forward to this week well um there's two things um one there is a women of color uh wellness conference that's happening on Saturday so I'm excited to go to that um, and then, um, there's this kind of like day long event that's happening at Syracuse university that, um, is looking at like medical humanities and stuff like that. Um, and one of the people that I met at, um, upstate, she's like really interested into graphic medicine and, and I'm really interested into graphic medicine. I'm a huge geek. Like I come through it from like manga and graphic novels. I used to watch anime, like forever and a day so I'm just out of myself but that's fine um and so graphic medicine is essentially which I don't know if you've heard of graphic medicine before I actually haven't 
No? Okay. All right. Okay. So if you have like maybe two more minutes. Yeah. Um, no, I no. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> so graphic medicine is essentially um, this, I want to say like, and I'm still new to it really and truly, um, but it's essentially where um, it's like illustrations. So, you know, thinking about like, it could be um, hand-drawn and things like that of different people experiences with uh, the healthcare system. So it could be from the perspective of medical students um, or healthcare professionals, from caretakers, um, from patients themselves. And so it's displaying um, their journeys, their stories, their narratives, even education. Uh, medical education, tax in a different way. That is illustration. Oh, that's kind of what I do, but we don't call it that. <laughs> but that's really cool. Yeah. So is it like a graphic novel type thing? Yes. It's essentially, it's essentially that, except it's focused on medicine. So that it can be cool. anything. Like there is this... Um, I went to this event called Cripping the Cons. It's a very disability-focused and centered um, and oriented Comic-Con. Um, and there was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Just love it. Um, and I, I go to comic cons, like it's like, it's a fun thing to do. Everyone should go to a comic con at least once. If you've been to a football game, you should at least go to a comic con. Oh, it's uh, fun. I went to podcast con, so it's fine. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Georgia Weber, she was there. She is the, um, she did a graphic memoir, because uh, she has, she's, she loses her voice. Like she has issues with her, um, her esophagus and she talks about um in her um book graphic memoir called dumb she talks about um losing her voice and how that have affected her um and the people surrounding her so that's just kind of like one another one is like the war uh for Caleb that talks about his um uh dealing with um anxiety um and so like is this you know, very, I don't want to say it's new because I'm just new to it, but it's very, very exciting. Um, and there's people who's developing these like graphic novel collections, like the National Network of Library of Medicine kind of have like a, this graphic novel toolkit and things of that nature. Oh, so cool. this, it's, yeah, it's something that I'm very, very interested in. Um, and then, you know, so I'm going to be working with a colleague at Upstate and at SU doing something um, around graphic medicine. Hmm. Ours so. is like, I don't talk about it very much on the podcast, but it's video-based medical education. And we do have a whole graphics team who like will recreate stuff. So yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, being it because my, uh, my advocacy for like graphic novels, graphic memoirs, graphic medicine is because um, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. That's, that's so true. And, and that's why people still use it. Um, and sometimes you're able to talk about, um, really serious topics, um, using a medium, um, to help people deal with and, you know, express some level of sympathy or empathy for that person and, and helps them to like, um, see things because some people might have issues with um come actually imagining certain things and so illustrations and even by the author's own hand um really helps get that person into that person's that that their headspace you know what they're dealing with well that's really beautiful that's a cool thing and i hope other people look into that well thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate you coming on you are most welcome i'm just so flattered that <laughs> well no you are a badass so that's awesome <laughs> well thank you so much thank you bye